You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. The series that we're in, the time that we're in, we're calling Someone Asked. People ask questions, and the pastors, Julie, Rachel, Ben, and myself try to answer them because dialogue is at the heart of what we're doing, and we want to uh, engage in dialogue. So I'm going to try to answer a question now, and then you'll have a chance to respond to, uh, I guess, my answer or answer it in your own way. Does that make sense? I'm I'm just going to get right into it. So there's no cute story to start this one. Just just want to talk about the the material at hand. Um, Here's the question. Is Christianity uh, fundamentally colonial? This is interesting. Um, I happen to run into the person asking this question. I like when I, because sometimes they're anonymous, but if there's like a byline to the question, that's helpful for me. Uh, So I know who asks this this question, and I learned a little bit more about where they were coming from. And in, in, in their question, they centralized something called the Great Commission. They centralized the Great Commission to Christianity. Are people familiar with the Great Commission? Um, and wondered if the Great Commission was a colonial commission. So let's look at this passage before we go any further. This is right after Jesus resurrects, after he's crucified, he resurrects, before he ascends, the, uh, the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. Someone out loud read this, just these uh, five verses. So the eleven disciples went off to Galilee, down to where Jesus had instructed them to go. And there they saw him and worshipped him, though some hesitated. Jesus came towards them and addressed them. All authority in heaven and on earth, he said, has been given to me. So you must go and make the nations into disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And look, I am with you every single day to the very end of the age. So the question asker is wondering, thanks Kate for, for reading that, whether making disciples and baptizing all the, all the nations is colonialist. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a worthy question because much of the spread of Christianity is often conflated with colonialism, especially as we get into the second millennium of Christianity. Part of the problem, of course, with reading a passage like this and then applying it 2,000 years later is... Without getting too much into it, I happen to think the end of the age here, as the writer is imagining it, is a much sooner time than 2,000 years later. And so it's hard, it can be hard to kind of figure out what the Bible's really uh, saying to us or asking of us. Um, but since we're talking about the spread of Christianity as conflated with colonialism, let's watch a video about how Christianity spread. This was an interesting thing I viewed this week. You say it just starts playing right away, right? So is that familiar enough to, to, to you so you could track along with what was happening? Does that make sense? How the thing, the purple was the Christianity, in case you didn't catch that. But um, I think this is how the water is going to spread, too, at least, depending on what happens. So put, just have that existential crisis in your brain as, you, uh, as we proceed. Um, so for the first thousand years of Christianity or so, it was largely confined to North Africa, and not for very long in North Africa, and also Europe, right around the Mediterranean. Much of the New Testament is happening in that immediate region. Um, and it wasn't really until the European discovery of the Americas, as you noted, in the second millennium, and the scramble for Africa, what they uh, euphemistically called the partitioning of Africa, 
towards the end of the 19th and early 20th century that Christianity spread much beyond, this, much beyond Europe. And as far as, as far as I can tell, at least in the New Testament, in the, in the few hundred years that followed, the spread of Christianity wasn't uh, violent um, in the same way that we sometimes understand it today or understand it throughout this long history that we have. Um, Paul and the other apostles spread it throughout the Mediterranean in a very personal way, largely because they didn't have any political power to spread it um, in another way. And so it wasn't until the Roman Empire got a hold of Christianity that it somehow became a state religion and then um, connected with Roman expansion. So we have an idea about how the movement spread, sometimes by word, often by sword. But the question at hand wonders if the spread of Christianity or evangelism, as you might call it, is fundamentally colonial. And, and, and I want to emphasize that word fundamentally. It's one of those extreme words that you can kind of just say no because it's so all-encompassing and then poke a hole in the argument and then that's the end of the discussion. I think that's a little too easy to do. So I'm not, I want to note that it's talking about the, at the heart of Christianity is it this thing, but that we have more to say even if it isn't. Because, though I will eventually argue that Christianity isn't fundamentally colonial, I won't ever say that colonialism wasn't a tool used to spread Christianity, nor, or, or, or better yet, evangelism is a cover for uh, colonialist motives. At least, so, so you're getting kind of how I'm thinking about this personally, and you might have a different thought that you want to share later. Uh, so let's start with a working definition of colonialism. Colonialism is the policy or practice of... Uh, attaining full or partial control of a different society through settlement sometimes or through economic exploitation, right? Examples of colonialism, think back to like 10th and 11th grade, depending on how the curriculum worked in your state. Um, the British conquest of India and of the Americas would be an example of colonialism. The former with India being an example of indirect economic rule and the latter as an example of settler colonialism. So there's two different forms we're talking about here. Indirect rule, where you have economic control over an area, but you don't all move there or something, although a lot of Brits did move there. Or you have settler colonialism, like in the United States and like in Israel. So, so we, could, we can say those are, those are two different working examples we have. And there's more we could say, and I don't, I'll prolong you the history lesson for now. I, I, will, I will avoid the history lesson for now. I long to prolong it, though, just so you know what's <laughs> happening within me. Um, so, for the most part, colonialism requires a homeland or a metropole and a periphery, a main place and then a peripheral place, if you will. And you can see some of the, uh, some of the problematic language we're already encountering with this. So, in the case of colonialism in the late 19th and 20th century, Britain, France, and Portugal were like the metropole. And the metropole sought economic and resource benefit from the territories that they conquered. Sometimes the relationship was less, less exploitative than others, but in general I think it um, falls on the side of immoral, unethical, wrong. These are the words I use to describe colonialism. And for me, I have to say, my conclusions about resource exploitation and the problems with it come from my faith, right? That's why I don't like colonialism. And so from my vantage point, Christianity is anti-colonial. 
Um, and I'm not just saying that to make a point. When I was literally writing down this litany of, of negative words that I used to describe colonialism, right, wrong, unethical, um, immoral, I was also going to write, as a matter of instinct, anti-Christian, because that's how, that's how I think about it. Um, and I have to admit, right, for me, my anti-colonial beliefs stem from Jesus. Nevertheless, I do not think that people are reading the Great Commission and automatically moving to economic exploitation, right? I don't even think that's a very quick <coughs> maneuver that someone uh, thinks. Make a disciple so you can take all the minerals, right? I don't think that's even an immediate thought in most Christians, however heinous you imagine these Christians to be. I don't think they're thinking that. But the issue is... Um, What kind of colonialism are we talking about, right? The question we're really wrestling with is more about whether evangelism and missionary work, I know some of these words spark up a lot, they, uh, they spark your imagination when I say evangelism or missionary, at least some of you, and, and those words have meaning to them that you may connotate negatively or positively depending on where you're coming from. But is that kind of work, does that fundamentally change the culture of the people it's trying to reach. Right? This is the question about the cultural components of Christianity. What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean? How does Christianity change you? How does it change your culture? Does it necessarily change your culture? If the question to that answer is yes, that Christianity necessarily, or uh, as, as, as a fundamental part of it, changes your culture, then the answer to the question whether it's fundamentally colonial or not is yes, right? That, that's, that's what I think, especially if we're defining colonialism in terms of spreading one's culture. Does that make sense? You're tracking with where we're going? But I don't think Christianity has a culture unto itself. In my experience and in my understanding, it's in its best form adapts to cultures instead of imposing on them. Circle of Hope has been in this line of thinking for a long time, right? We have some proverbs. Here's the Great Commission again. Uh, read, somebody read the first uh, paragraph there. It's shorter than a paragraph, it's a sentence. All cultures are fallen, yet Jesus reveals God in all of them. The church does not need to force people to leave all aspects of their culture in order to worship God through Jesus Christ. Uh, how about the second one? Those among us from traditional Christian backgrounds are dying to our precious memories of church in order to bring the gospel into the present with great flexibility. I like these two proverbs. The second one's kind of right. Someone snarky wrote the second one, too, because there's all these quotes, and, then and you know precious is, like, sarcastic, right, when you're reading it. It seems, it seems uh, funny how it's worded, but, you know, dozens of people have written these, and we, do, we keep them as they are for some reason. We can change them, of course, but I think my, like, uh, reaction to this is, is relatively positive because I'm laughing as I read it, so maybe we won't change this one. Um, so as a church, we don't think Christianity needs to adulterate aspects of one's culture, even if it influences some of them. And we're committed to adapting Christianity to cultures. And honestly, I think that's the spirit of the Bible, the New Testament, and of Jesus fundamentally. Now, my, the premise of that argument is based on the incarnation of Jesus, that God loved, God loved us by becoming us, adapting to us. 
And so literally adapting God's self to love us best. And that's the model we follow. It's not colonialist, it's inclusive, it's adaptable. Second, in both the Old and the New Testament, Jewish people and Christians are trying to include the stranger. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is very sensitive toward including the stranger. But because Israel is a puny nation, the Jewish people are also cautious about getting colonized themselves. Here, the Jewish people are the periphery, and the metropole are the people around them. Does that make sense? Remember those terms I was using earlier? Metropole is the, the mainland, and the periphery is the colonized land. The Jewish people are cautious about getting swallowed up by another culture. And sometimes that happens to Israel's detriment. You know, this is part of Jewish history, right? Um, the feast of, a, the, of a, Hanukkah, we'll start to talk about, well, we make a big deal of it because it falls during the material season, the shopping season. Um, that's all about not assimilating. That's the, that's the heart of the feast. We didn't get overtaken. We're still Jews, right? And that, that, that theme is in the Bible too. One of the reasons Israel's kingdom divided and eventually fell was because Solomon was influenced by the religions and cultures around him because he married so thoroughly into them. Right, 300 wives, 700 concubines. He started becoming a different kind of person, right? Away from what God had taught him and connected to all these other cultures, right? And when Israel allies with cultures for personal gain, instead of relying on God, God punishes them. So there's something definitely in the Bible about, hey, don't get too influenced by all these cultures around you and change who you are. There's a sense of not that will affect somebody else's culture, but that other cultures will mess with us. And we have a little tiny thing going. We never, the, the, the success of the kingdom of Israel is, is, is low, low. Not a very successful organization. But invariably, Israel will, will, was influenced in all of its captivities, right? Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman. Judaism was affected by other cultures. And so the game Israel plays is how much can we flex without losing who we are? How much should we flex in order to accommodate the world? That's the fundamental uh, um, conflict in the New Testament. How much should we be influenced by Rome and how much should we be uh, resistant to Rome? And the two main political parties in, in Israel were having that very conflict. Israel was fearful of including the stranger, for example, after its Babylonian exile. So when Babylon after the fall of the, of, the, of the southern kingdom, took over Israel, and, and then they got free from Babylon. They were afraid of including other people because they would lose who they were. And in this case, they were expelling the Gentiles. Gentiles just means everyone who isn't Jewish. Don't influence us. We have our own thing going, and we don't want to be affected by all of you. And so what this brings to light is the story of Ruth, David's grandmother, David, the King David, the best king, the king after God's own heart, the ideal king, the, eventually the one who gives us Jesus. His grandmother's Moabite. She's from another tribe altogether. And this is significant. The point is, don't be afraid of being influenced by another culture to the point of being exclusive. David's grandmother, right? The real king's grandmother is from another tribe and another ethnicity altogether. So we've been including for a long time. Don't get all upset, even after Babylonian captivity. Right? Israel is fearful of being colonized. And that's a motif that runs through the New Testament. There's a, a fear, not of being a colonizer, but of being colonized. Paul goes to great lengths 
to include Gentiles in the church when many of their cultural traditions contradict Jewish cultural traditions. So Paul is trying to rid the early movement of Christianity of its essential parts, of its essential parts, of its fundamental parts. And he does so so radically by removing the symbol of the covenant that God has with Abraham. This is like the main thing of all of Judaism is the covenant God made with Abraham. It's symbolized by circumcision for some reason. And that's and, and, and Paul and the, and, and the, at the Jerusalem Council said that they agreed, the whole church agreed, you don't need to be circumcised to be in the church. You don't need to express the main covenant that we have in the church. So when we're talking about adapting Christianity today, going for something as significant as circumcision was the Jewish people is really going for the jugular, right? It's the, it's the main part of their faith, a main expression of their faith. It's not a small thing. It's a major thing. When Christianity was subverted by the Roman Empire in the fourth century, what followed was a more violent faith. So they tried, right, to be radically inclusive, willing to adapt and accommodate others, right? And when it didn't do that, the church didn't do that, Israel didn't do that, it became isolationist separatists, didn't play well with others. We have a, fear, a risk of doing that if we're not inclusive. But the counterpoint is this Roman idea when the, when the Romans take over the church. Christianity actually becomes part of the metropole then, to use an anachronism. It's at this moment when Constantine gets baptized, right at, the, right at his death, mind you, um, that Christianity becomes the imperial religion. It becomes the metropole's religion. That changes everything, right? 400 years in, we have the guns. They didn't have guns, but you get the expression, right? We have the power. That changed. Israel never got to that point. But here, early Christianity did. So when Christianity became European, it became dominant, it became centered, it became powerful, and it moved from a marginal religion to a dominant one, a religion, and, and, and it's, 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 it's ironic because the religion that followed the crucified God who conquered death became one that pursued the very powers that crucified Jesus and they began to spread death in their own right, right? It's an amazing thing that Christianity became its own antithesis. It became something else fundamentally. Christianity isn't fundamentally colonial. Christianity got colonized. Colonizing another culture, that is to say making it more like yours, the periphery becoming more like the metropole, is one problem Christians face. But like I mentioned above, so is adapting too much. If colonizing is one issue, uh, syncretizing is another. What's syncretizing mean? It means becoming more like another culture or another religion. And the dominators <coughs> tend to fear uh, uh, um, synchronizing their faith to the point that they damage inclusion because they think without separatism, we'll realize um, that, we're, that, that we're changing who we are. So there's a the tension there. This is, the, this is the place that we live in. How much should we influence? How much should we be influenced? How does this all work out? European Christians syncretize too much with the dominant state for power, for control, for wealth, and even, even for things like uh, rationality. And I think that diluted our faith. 
But Europeans aren't alone in their unconscious syncretism. My parents, for example, grew up in the Middle East. They grew up in Egypt. Now, some Christian, Christianity was brought to Egypt really very early on in um, our history, right? We think that the gospel writer Mark brought Christianity to Egypt and Ethiopia. And if you go back to that Business Insider map, you'll see a little purple pocket that kind of stayed in Africa forever. That's the, that's the, that's the ancient Coptic church. Um, but the, for the rest of Africa, Christianity spread because of colonialism. My parents probably had, uh, received uh, their faith through that colonialist influence and not through the Coptic influence. Although, this is TMI for this moment, we have some Coptic people in our family, that, so it all got mixed up. Um, on my mom's side, it's more mixed than on my dad's, as far as I can tell. Um, but we don't have a lot of good records. We don't even know how old my grandma is like to the date. And so it gets, we just kind of have to guess about what's happening. To be honest, I mean, there just isn't that kind of stuff. Anyway, by virtue of your name alone in Egypt, people know whether you're a Christian or the dominant religion Muslim. And these groups of people, especially when they approach their fundamentalist sects, fundamentalist means, uh, comes from fundamental, they, they, they think they've discovered an essential faith the fundamentalists, whether they're Christians or Muslims, are hostile toward each other. But most people aren't fundamentalists. They're just trying to live their life, right, and eat the subsidized bread. That's what's happening in Egypt. But that doesn't stop the dominant culture, the Muslim one, from influencing Christianity. And there are Muslim traditions that my parents essentially observe without any consciousness because of syncretism. For example, they don't drink. And they wouldn't tell you this, but I suspect they don't drink because of Muslim influence, not because of American-style teetotaling and prohibition. Right? They don't have any idea about what that is. They've only been in this country for 35 years or something. So that, that's not what influenced them, right? Something else did. And, and where did that come from? It came from, uh, came from uh, the Islamic faith because Christians have been drinking for like 2,000 years. Right? It's, a main, it's like a main part of what we're doing, right? So there's a whole different... <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but it's kind of true. So, um, you know, Jesus, water and wine, the whole thing, the sacraments, wine, there's a lot. Okay, it's, a, it's not like we're not teetotalers necessarily, but my parents are, and they are because they uh, got Muslim influence. Um, that's just one example, right? And there are more, too. And so you can, you can look at them in the, uh, you can look at this right now in the American context and think, what, what colors Christianity in the United States today? <laughs> I'm not asking you to moralize it, just to note it for now. Get, get away from uh, making everything immoral. Just figure out why, how are we acting like our culture? Have we been colonized ourselves? And what are the things that are unique about American Christianity or whatever context you find yourself in? My bigger point here is that we can be influenced by people seeking to take advantage on purpose or not of us and also do the same with others. So the question we really need to discern is what is essential about our faith and what isn't essential about our faith. So the tension for me is what, what is our faith? How can we express it? How can we adapt it so that it's more palatable to another culture? What's the content of our faith? What is the container of our faith? 
Is this room a container? Is this experience tonight what, 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 what holds the content of our faith, or is it the content? Are you following what I'm saying here? Does it, does it, so, so is our tradition just the container for our faith, and can we move the content elsewhere and have it look differently? Right? I think that's the question we're wondering about. That's, that's how we work out this problem. Right? There's this, uh, I won't go into the whole thing tonight because it's too long, but there's a movie called Silence that's based on, a, on a, a Japanese novel that Martin Scorsese adapted to film. And the movie wrestles with this idea as these Portuguese missionaries try to convert Japanese people in the Jap- Japanese empire to Christianity, and they fail at doing so. And when they finally do succeed, they realize the brand of Christianity that the Japanese people are observing is far different than the Catholic Christianity that they brought there. Because the Japanese land, according to this account, lacked the vocabulary to hold Christianity, right? They had a different container for holding the content of it. Something was, something was different about what was happening. And so when we wrestle with the idea of what is the content of our faith and what is the container, there is significant theological implications to that. But when we master the difference between form and meaning, between content and, between container and content, what something really is and then what holds it, we can learn to spread our faith without imposing it and without violence, right? Because we have an idea for what we're sharing and we know what to let go and what not to let go, right? And I'm convicted in saying Christianity can adapt itself to a lot of cultures and, and, and change them in a way to follow Jesus without um, making them more aesthetically or culturally like mine. Does that make sense? And this requires great sensitivity because it means we're going to have to let go of really cool things that we think are important to us. That's not easy to do because we're passionate people. Right? And I think you can see the colonizers and say, yeah, you don't need an acoustic guitar to worship in sub-Saharan Africa. Right? That would be like it. But, but we have an acoustic guitar that we think is important, that someone else needs to have. Right here in this room, you have one, Circle of Hope has one. Let's try to figure that out together so we're not imposing something we don't need to impose in order to share the gospel. Right? How do we bring the gospel to the present with great flexibility? Christianity isn't a Western concept. Evangelism isn't necessarily colonialism. But our form isn't totally meaningless. Without some consideration of its limits and where it can flex, evangelism can be totally ineffective because you never help someone follow Jesus in any knowable way or simply the result of cultural imposition and violence. So, is Christianity fundamentally colonial? No, but it isn't formless enough to not influence other cultures that it enters, but it's not a culture unto itself so as to replace cultures that it touches. The minute that you think you are, you start acting like a colonist. So I think we need to learn those differences so that we don't impose our faith violently, but so that we also have enough substance, enough form, enough content to be able to make a disciple. That's all I have for now. Let's do a, some prayer and talk back. Is that cool? Can we engage a little bit? Thank you, Lord, for uh, 
being here and being among us and adapting to us, becoming like us. May we become like those we're relating to in order to show them your love. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.